Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh with Alan Herrera. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing okay so far. <laughs> I hope it gets even better as we talk more. Um, so we've had several conversations and at the end of our last one, I really enjoyed it and I wish it could, wished it could have kept going then. And I said, how about another conversation? And a lot of times people say, well, what, about what? And I don't really have a specific agenda for us to continue. And you said, well, I'm worried that we might repeat ourselves. And yes, we might repeat ourselves. Uh, because when I listened to past episodes, I realized there's some things that I, I, I want to keep coming back and talking to you both as someone who's lived among the Kogi. That is, you have access to Kogi, way of life and views of the world. And you yourself have gone through changes from having had a much more close experience uh, interactions with them than I have. And there are a few things I wanted to cover. And I'm also open to you covering or you sharing what's most valuable to you. And I thought I'd start with some simple things. And there are a lot of things that we covered. And I hope we don't repeat ourselves too much. Or if we do, that the listeners find that the repetition adds value. But there are a couple things, a couple quick questions off the top. I don't know if this will be a quick thing to answer. Uh, all right, a quick one. How do they keep their clothes so white? Because it feels like they're sitting in the dirt a lot, and yet their stuff is way whiter than mine. Basically, they just wash them a lot. Uh, whenever I go on any kind of a, a journey with Kogi, I mean, in the mountains, um, uh, the Kogi will, they don't carry much in the way of property, but one thing they do carry is spare clothes um, so that they can, on a wash and wear basis. Um, so we will have to take time out at some point uh, in the course of a day for uh, the, the Kogi to take their clothes off, wash them in the river, um, and that's hard work, pound them until they're reasonably dry, and putting on their other clothes and then letting the clothes dry in the sun. Um, and they keep them very pristine because they keep them very clean. Is it a matter of, of um, dignity or pride or just like uh, cultural, just we don't think twice about it and it's just the way it is? Um, clothes are the external statement of the person. That's the way they look at it. Um, and the clothes uh, – so uh, – Men are weavers, um, women are spinners, men are weavers, broadly speaking. Um, and uh, a, a man who is spinning and making, uh, is weaving and making a cloth to wear, um, what the cloth is, is actually his shroud. He will be buried in the clothes that he makes. Um, and uh, so this is um, the statement you carry to the other side. <laughs> Um, about who you are is also the quality of your own clothing, the care that has gone into it, the thought that has gone into it. Everything they make is, of course, everything they do is a process of what I suppose we call mindfulness. Um, it's uh, the insertion of intention into the material world by the person that's doing the work. Uh, so, Washing, cleaning your clothes, looking after them, for them, is a process of placing your intention into the clothes themselves. I can hear a lot of people thinking, well, sometimes I just want to relax. I don't want to have to put intention ever all the time. 
And do they get a, and also I think a lot of people, I get this all the time is if we don't have things like washing machines are one of the big examples of how people before had to work so hard. And now that's freed people up, especially women from having to work all the time. Now, I find that the more that I move towards sustainability, and I'm far from sustainable, that the things that I do, I enjoy, especially cooking, for example, is one of my great connections to nature, even in the middle of Manhattan. And cleaning the floor, which I do regularly, is something that I really, I don't enjoy it in the sense of like, it's it's not fun. But it's satisfying, is Yeah. It, like a lot of these things become rituals. Yes. That are, I mean, I could go out and, I mean, I do meditate and do yoga. Well, I haven't done yoga in a while, but I could go out of my way to do those things. But by working them into parts of life that are just parts of life, it's very rewarding and, and self-awareness and calming. Even though to the outside perspective, I think most people, I think would prefer to hire a maid than to clean their own floor. But to me, it's the total other way around. How does that resonate from a Kogi perspective or from your perspective having seen them i think well from my own perspective um that I, mean, I have grandchildren yeah um i have four granddaughters and the things that they choose to do for pleasure one for example who's she's now um uh, 10 years old um she insisted on learning how to uh, how to sew and she now devotes a lot of uh, energy to designing and making clothes, not for any other reason than that it is a satisfying and interesting thing to be doing. Another one um, is a highly inventive book. Um, she's a little older now. She's now 15. Um, but for years, she has been an inventive and creative cook, and this gives her great pleasure. Um, they grow up in an atmosphere where the achievement that they're expected to do is academic. Um, they're supposed to learn things at school, be good at all the academic processes that the school is concerned with, and things like making clothes and doing cooking are regarded as, I suppose, menial and trivial tasks, but they are not. And what, they, what I see from my granddaughters is the sense of satisfaction and human development and growth that comes from doing these things which are actually really important in the sense that they satisfy you in the way that you and indeed I are satisfied by cleaning a kitchen floor. Our attitude to how, what is a valuable way to spend your time tends to be rather odd um, and is largely predicated on the needs of a mercantile society that has to train people in um, various elements connected to bookkeeping and exchange, um, rather than actually making and doing, um, and in which we actually lose a tremendous amount of our humanness. 
Yeah, I'm increasingly thinking of what do I want to do? What is like what do I want to do? And I felt before that we had to keep working on progress and I wanted to do what was important for progress, which would include things like finding cures for diseases and finding clean, green, renewable energies and publishing scientific papers for some future date. And if I were to spend time, I did play sports, but I felt like that was self-indulgent. And, uh, you know, as much as it, it, there were, I mean, I enjoyed it, but also it taught me teamwork and leadership and coordination that could help me further my career, which was always for some future date. It also taught you competition, didn't it? My, yeah, work seemed like, yeah, I'm curious what, what you meant by mercantile. Is, it, is it, Are you just using that word casually or is there a specific definition? Because I feel like there's mercantilism and capitalism. And- no, no, I'm thinking of what, what are the things that our schools, what are the things that our schools were set up and invented to produce? Um, what is the syllabus designed originally to produce? And schools do, are designed to serve the needs of a mercantile population, which is why um, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic are the, uh, particularly arithmetic, the dominant element in education. After all, it wasn't until you developed a mercantile economy in the 17th century that um, arithmetic and mathematics formed part of the education syllabus of anybody. Um, we now have to learn things and taught to be good at them and waste or spend a lot of time on them uh, because that is what the economy came to require. Um, but it's interesting if you read Samuel Pepys's diaries, for example, uh, when he became um, was given charge of the Navy and had to become responsible for the financial management of the Navy, he didn't know how to add, subtract, multiply, or divide, because that was not part of the humanist education that he was given or anybody was given. Um, And he had to get a naval captain to teach him how to do this and how to learn mathematics. And he then um, was so exhilarated by it that he spent his evenings teaching what he had learned to his wife. Um, Actually, it was a good way for him to learn. He stopped doing it when it came to division because he felt that this was too difficult for a woman. Um, of course, what he really meant was he didn't understand it. <laughs> you also make me think of Abraham Lincoln, who is widely, I mean, he, he's like in the pantheon in Americans, uh, among Americans. And he had, I think, one year of formal schooling. Yeah. One year. And we all want to, I mean, I think a lot of people would like to be, you know, do for the world what Abraham Lincoln did. And another big thing is that we, how do we interact with indigenous cultures? Indigenous is not the right word, but I'm going to keep using it. And one of the things I think people get today that when we used to send missionaries to convert them and following the missionaries would be the military or the engineers to send a train through or something like that. I think people kind of get that that was a bit imposing, but we still want to send them schools and aid and we want to educate them. 
I think we want to educate them in things that we want them to know. It's a power necessity. I mean, you see this terribly clearly in the Sierra, where uh, there's obviously been, in, in the first days, there was an attempt of the church to uh, insert itself into the indigenous communities and persuade the indigenous people that they had to um, learn about um, the Christian understanding of divinity. But the purpose of that was not really, although it was ostensibly to save their souls, uh, its actual purpose was to um, uh, control their labor uh, and to use their labor. And this was a large part of the um, Spanish colonization of America. Um, now, more recently, with the complete breakdown in Colombia of civil order, the Sierra Nevada, where the Kogi live, is one of the areas where the Colombian government completely failed to um, insert its authority, and the area became dominated by guerrilla groups and uh, drug lords, uh, and became a nexus of the 80-year civil war that took place in Colombia. And one of the problems that Colombia has been trying to grapple with is how do you bring the state into the area in order to uh, pacify and control it, and above all, of course, to get rid of the guerrillas and the drug dealers. And over the last 20 years, the bulk of that effort has gone into getting the children of the indigenous into schools. And the army has been using its power and wealth to help the indigenous expand their territory uh, by helping them to build new villages or towns, and in those towns, inserting schools. And there the children learn Spanish. And by learning Spanish, they become part of the state. Uh, not only do they become part of the state, they also learn to think in the way that we think, rather than the way their parents and the grandparents think, because the language teaches you how to think and understand. And this enables the state to extend its power, its authority, its rule into the territory. So education becomes very visibly and obviously um, a part of the process of colonization. From your perspective, I'm reading, you sound not quite jaded, but you see how things, there's how things are pretended to work, which is, oh, it's to help them expand their land. So it's putting it into language that people feel like, oh, that's, that sounds great. But the actual purpose is subjugation. Or it's not that. That's simply the, yeah. the hook. You're right. Yes. Yes. And I mean, the work that, that Tyrona Trust is doing is to, on agriculture, learn from them. Yes. And I feel like on education, I think it's so tempting to feel like, of course, education is, if, if there's anything that's an absolute good, it's education. And we have to bring them education. They don't even have books. 
we've got to bring them things like that. That way they can progress instead of being stuck where they are. Ah. I would love to <laughs> yes. I would love the idea of the discussion of books. Um it's uh some years ago uh discussing the problem with the Kogi of how to get us to understand the world in the same terms that they understand it. I suggested that perhaps we could create books for our children which tell the stories that the Kogi tell their children. And this way, our children would learn to see the world in the way the Kogi do. That didn't sound like too bad an idea. So I was given a set of in, of texts um, dictated by the mamas, uh, which were the stories that they tell their children. The mamas had the idea, which was because they think proactively, they could see this education progress that I've described and the schools that I've described were going to come. So they wanted to try and make sure that the materials in the schools that were going to be used for teaching Spanish did not contain, were not made of our stories and our narratives, but were made of their stories and their narratives in Spanish. And that's how they would learn Spanish. It's an interesting idea. So I was given these texts. And I realized as I worked on them, which was a very slow process, that they were actually completely incomprehensible to us without a tremendous amount of additional explanation. So if you have a text which describes, as one of them does, the war between people and trees, that doesn't correspond to our idea of the way in which indigenous people think about nature. Um, you know, then it, they turn out not to be tree huggers. They actually have a kind of biblical prehistorical narrative which describes the conflict the extremely dangerous and violent conflict between people and the forest and the trees. And the whole narrative works its way through. And that needs quite a lot of explanation and background to be able to make any sense of it if we're going to use it, because we can't present on that basis the indigenous people as being people who have a empathy with trees and the trees want to connect with people and people want to connect with trees. No, it didn't quite like that. It's different. So I wrote extensive commentary for these stories so that they could make sense. to me. And then I took them back to the Kogi and I started to read them for their approval out loud. And after a day of readings, I was interrupted by the guy who is now the um, the, the governor of the Kogi and their territory, uh, who said, tell us what happens when a bad man reads a good book. I didn't have a very satisfactory answer to that. Um, the problem with a book, from their perspective, is that you don't know who the reader is. All teaching is done face-to-face, person-to-person, and is the correct teaching for the person that is being taught. There is no such thing as a unreal virtual human being who can be taught 
um, in a pre-packaged way that is going to be right for a real human being. They don't trust books. This is utterly fascinating because now I think of the whole educational system of as a system that we are inputs, that the goal is not us, uh, is, is not our betterment, although it's Quite. framed that way. Quite. But yeah. to maintain a system and, and grow the system. It is to maintain a system, grow the system, and it is based on the notion of um, human beings not being particular, but of being generalized. We use the same system for all sorts of other things like medicine. You know, the medicines that you're given are not appropriate to you. They're appropriate to people. And there's a difference between you and everybody else. So maybe the medicines need to be different from you and everybody else. I suspect that one of the goals, if the experiments that or the learning experiences that you guys are doing, idea, I, I imagine that if we learn enough from them on agriculture or not agriculture, I guess, but tending the land, if that's the right word, that we'll bring some of that to Europe and America and the rest of the world. And we mustn't do it as a system. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, there are a number of things here. One, uh, at an early, I used to think when I first met the Coggy that the stories they told me were um, archaic stories that have been handed on from generation to generation, told in more or less the same words from generation to generation, um, and that this was how information was passed on. And then it dawned on me that the explanation, explanatory tales I was being told had never been told before. They were actually created for me. The story that brought it home to me was that I was being told about the origin of um, uh, gender. Uh, and I was told that in the beginning, the mother was both masculine and feminine. And uh, that it was only uh, when the mother had sons and daughters that gender came into the world. And they imposed gender on the mother and the expression what i was told was because the mother she was a woman but she dressed like a man she carried a neck she had a necklace like a woman but a bag like a man and she had a beard like a man and i it took me a while to cotton on to the fact that this was something that was being said to me for me and there was no reason why that should have ever been said before in teaching Coggy children this material, because Coggy don't have beards. <laughs> I was the person with a beard. So a beard is not a statement of masculinity for the Coggy, but they knew that it's a statement of masculinity for me. And so I realized then, as I began to unpick everything else I was being told, that all this was not generic. It was all specifically being told for me. And every teaching is recreated for the person that is being taught. 
all of our culture, I mean, as you're saying that, when I think of stories told around the campfire a long time ago, somehow I think of the Iliad and I think of how we want to maintain that exact thing. And, and we presume, like, how did people memorize it so well that they could memorize this multi-hundred page book, in, in, in the, the version as it is for us today? But now you're making me think there were just stories, people telling stories as a relationship, as a, like, there might be themes that might run here and there, but that it's, it's a, I mean, and now I'm thinking of, of what art and culture are if we're not recording everything for the future and trying to create a legacy so much as trying to enjoy our time or whatever we want to do with the people that we're with in the moment. Yeah. Like they're not trying to get it. Like what's the exact thing that was said? I mean, in law and in art, we always want to restore and keep the masterpieces exactly as they are. But what if you don't care about that? If you just And this is also what anthropologists do. They'll look for the oldest version of the story they can find as the most authentic. And I realize that actually that's a mistake. There is no authenticity in it. The story will change according to who it's being told for. And it's mirrored in the medicine, and that's why I mentioned that. I may have told you, have I, about um, what happened when I had a kidney stone when I was with the Kogi. Have I told this story? I, you might have, but I don't remember it. Okay. Um, I had a kidney stone before I went to the Kogi, and I know what a kidney stone was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but go ahead and repeat it, because I forgot. Okay. And then when I was there, I developed another kidney stone, and they gave me a cure. And it actually worked. And I've never had a kidney stone since. Uh, and I said, look, you've got something here which is immensely valuable, um, which you could actually use as leverage. Um, you can exchange it for other things you want from us, so long as you carefully control this knowledge. But you can do that. Uh, and they considered this as a proposition and then said, we cannot teach you how to cure a kidney stone. Because if we do that, you will take it to your scientists and they will say the mamas are liars because they will find it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because what we gave you was for you as a person in a place here at a time now. And that doesn't mean it works for anybody else, anywhere else, at any other time. All right, we we're in the context of talking about us educating them, yeah. or that's what we're thinking we're doing. Yeah, and if we're going to bring, if this is the right term, land management from them to us, what about bringing their education to us? Is that something you're also working on? Uh, well, as I said, um, they they were very suspicious of the idea of that kind of. Um, no, what we are going to do is. Um, uh, produce educational materials as part of the project. It's a very, it's a key part of the project because if we don't learn, we don't have educational materials, um, then we're wasting our time. What, but the object, hmm, what we have to learn is not any specifics, but the paradigm, the way of thinking being an understanding that underlies what they do, which is totally different from our way of thinking, being and understanding. And 
their proposition, which I think may turn out to have validity, is that unless we can relate to what we are doing in the way that they are taught to, we will fail. Our crops will die. Our plants will die. Our soil will die. Um, so what we have to learn is the paradigm that lies behind what they do and make use of it. That will be the great challenge for the scientists that we have working with the Kogi Mamas to find a way of expressing what's going on in ways that can be um, reported on and measured. That's going to be a trick. I feel like over the years you've gone from having a glimpse that there's a paradigm there to increasingly understanding it yourself, but not in a way that you – not so well that you can convey it to others. Is that – I think that's probably right. And the reason I don't know it well enough to convey it to others is that um, it seems so different from what we regard as a rational way of thinking, behaving, acting. Um, it's, it is so bound up with the subjectiveness of consciousness, which is not something that we are good at taking account of. I mean, our science is actually built, our scientific processes and descriptions are built on the exclusion of the experimenter from the experiment, aren't they? Uh, the, the, uh, the language of description, um, a something was taken. Everything is put into passive terms. Uh, and then this was done to it. So the experimenter is not there in the experiment. The actor is not there in the action. And that is the exact opposite of the paradigm that the Kogi use, in which the presence of the person is fundamental to what's going on. And they are not just a participant in the process, they are the process. It feels like this takes a lot of time to digest. It's not just learning a bunch of facts and getting answers to a few questions. It's... No. No, it's it's totally changing how it's not. I don't even know how to put it into words. It's not just, I mean, paradigms feels like a good word, but under expressing the difference of yeah. how you view the world and interact with them and view yourself and all these everything. Yeah. But, um, and I'm not a scientist. So I don't know what's going on in science now, which is addressing these issues. But I do know that these are issues in science now and obviously um, have been for a long time. The uh, subjectivity engaged in, obviously, in quantum physics, in nuclear physics, is considerable. Um, the, the presence of the observer is now understood to be significant. But why and how the presence of the observer is important? That isn't something that we're grappling with properly. 
We're now doing work on the nature of consciousness, but tying that together with the nature of experiment and action, that's still problematic, but that is what has to emerge from the work we're doing with the Kogi, in which you will, I think, have to be able to see the connection between your consciousness as a person doing stuff in the land and the consciousness which is there in the land that you are connecting with and working with. Now that we've got to the point where we know that, for example, a wood or a forest is not composed of separate biological entities, but is composed of intensely connected biological entities, which are all bound together in a single thing with the, um, uh, the, the threads of uh, the fungal threads that link the roots of plants and trees together, communicating and transporting material from between everything that's there in the land. So you have a single living entity. The Kogi go beyond that and say, it's not just the forest, it's not just the woodland, it is the land itself, which is part of this living entity. And so are you. Until we can make sense of that and work with it, we're not going to be able to understand how to take care of it. And yet, these are not new ideas. These are very old ideas. They're ideas which are in our history and prehistory. And a large part, of, while you were talking about progress, I was making me think all the time of the amount of stuff that we have knowledge that we have lost, that we have thrown away. And the reason why we have, we, we define progress not simply in terms of actions and results, but also in terms of the institutions that conduct these actions and produce these results. And if it's the wrong institution, we dump it. Um, so we have an enormous distinction between uh, medicine as performed by people who have been to various kinds of medical college and medicine as it is performed by midwives and wise women and inheritors of a culture that teaches rather than an institution that teaches because there you don't get the kind of qualification uh, that gives you authority within our public, public system. Uh, and one example, when you were talking about anesthetics, um, the knowledge of plants in medieval Europe was extensive, profound, and very, very effective. And there are still occasional records of the use of plant anesthetics, for example. And I, I wrote a, a book with Terry Jones called Medieval Lives, in which we looked at this in relation to the monastic use of anesthetic plants. And the experiments have been done demonstrating just how effective they are. So the issues that you were suggesting that something like um, uh, toothache uh, can only be dealt with by the kind of anesthetics that are produced by our chemical industrial industry. In fact, they were dealt with at least as effectively in the Middle Ages with plant cures and treatments, which we have completely forgotten about. And we're very good at throwing knowledge away as well as developing it. 
Um, another example is that lots of buildings in Europe were reconstructed or built in the Middle Ages using the tiles from Roman buildings. Those tiles are very solid and don't crumble. They're not friable. Um, they uh, work as uh, strong elements within buildings. But we don't know how to make tiles like that. Our tiles crumble. Um, so there is a lot of lost knowledge about building techniques and manufacturing processes because it hasn't come through academic routes and therefore we threw it away. I'm curious, you've said that, if I remember right, you've also visited, I'm not sure to what extent, lived among other indigenous cultures. And I'm, yeah. if that's the case, how much of what you're saying is specific to the Kogi and how much of it is more widespread? None of it is specific to the Kogi, except that the Kogi systematize it. Um, so uh, whereas uh, the other indigenous cultures that I've been with, um, it's uh, the traditional is, uh, wisdom keepers um, have lost a lot of their knowledge and their authority. They have been subject to much more destructive pressures from colonialism. The Kogi, I think, possibly uniquely, not just the Kogi, the uh, Arwako do this too, um, have preserved uh, as a systematic body of knowledge, their ancestral knowledge. And they are also, as I say, proactive in the way in which they use it. So they think about what's going to come next and what's coming down the line to them. Um, which I've not encountered in other indigenous cultures. I mean, when I was with the Shibibo, for example, in the Peruvian Amazon, um, there um, I was being told by the Shibibo that they were very keen to have electricity because of all the advantages that it would offer. And so they really would like the uh, Peruvian state to be able to bring them electric power in. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt here because I do remember last time you talked about how you said if you get the electricity, you'll okay. have to pay for it. Yeah, that's right. And to pay for it, you'll have to, yeah. Okay, yeah. And I, I, here's something we could – you talked about consciousness and did you talk to them about consciousness? And Because it's something that is, to me, one of the big mysteries of – I don't know mysteries, but things that like were conscious and I don't know why. I don't know what consciousness is. I have it as, as best I can tell. But they maybe they have a very different perspective of it than we do. Well, the word aluna means consciousness. So consciousness, as far as they're concerned, is the only actual reality. Um, everything is that we perceive and experience is uh, a reflection, a trace of an underlying consciousness. Mm, yeah. Um, one of the problems that one of the, this is one of the reasons why they bring up the children who are going to be mamas in the dark. Um, we, the world that we, in our own consciousness, inhabit, is a world filled with color, sound, texture, smells. Um, all the things that are experienced through our senses and given these forms in our consciousness. 
And what we fail generally to grasp is that actually none of these exist. All these colors that we see are simply things that are hallucinated by us within our own consciousness. Smells and textures and flavors, none of those exist. They are made within our consciousness out of the electromagnetic vibrations <laughs> and contact with particles that our bodies transport into a universe that we inhabit. But that universe is something that corresponds to the physical thing out there only at the points where we hit it, where we collide. Um, but as a fabulous, wonderful experience, it's a fabulous, wonderful experience which is made of consciousness. It's not there otherwise. We're not very good at grasping that. Yeah, I'm trying to. I, it's. A, I'm getting a little bit of it, and it's making me think of. I've I've heard things like that before, more in a Vedic context from India. Uh huh. And but it didn't really click then. It's not really. I wouldn't say it's clicking now, but it's making me see things different. Like I mean, before, I would have said, "Well, look, there's a universe. I mean, you know, the Earth is going around the sun, and we're spinning around and." If I bump my hand against this table, it's, you know, there's a table there. But there's a thing you interpret as the table. Yeah, it's all actually, my actual experience of it is all purely through my senses, which are then processed into processed in, my consciousness. Processed into a complete reality, which is presented to you by your consciousness, but which actually isn't. I mean, the simplest element of this to, to start to come to grips with, I think, is, is color. Because, of course, colors don't exist in the world. They are interpretations that go on in our minds. And the difference between red and blue is not a... Uh, they're not different qualities. They are simply different wavelengths. And you can transition from one to the other by changing the wavelength. The color is something that is completely the fiction that your consciousness creates, a hallucination that your consciousness creates. And your consciousness isn't necessarily that good at doing it. So there is this wonderful process where if you are presented with all the colors simultaneously, that is too much information for this consciousness to process so your consciousness simply blanks it out and gives you the lovely peaceful relaxing white which is simply the elimination of knowing that all those colors are there so they know the spectrum is there they i mean they've seen rainbows yeah of course yeah yeah and what fraction you said the ones who are going to be mamas are taught in the dark yeah what fraction of them are mamas, and what fraction are not? Oh, you're talking about a, a, a couple of hundred. Out of? Uh, out of 12,000. Okay, so it's a small number of them. Yeah. And the rest of them, do they have... Is, they don't have any of this. Do they have a different sense of these things? Well, no. Um, so they're, um, they're not uh, engaged in the discussion of abstruse things 
like what we're talking about. Um, and in fact, there's also a separate language that the mamas have, um, which is not understood by the rest of the Kogi. How do the different communities view each other? Is it reverence and... What, what do you mean by different communities? Or the, how do the mamas look at the non-mamas and vice versa? Well, the, the mamas are responsible for the non-mamas. Um, they are. Uh, they have to um, uh, take care of them, advise them, protect them, help them, uh, and show them how their how their life can be sustained and 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 how they can work with the soil to make it sustainable. Um, so they, the, the non-mummers regard the mummers, generally speaking, with uh, profound respect and unchallenged obedience. One of the features I've always found most difficult about the life of the Kogi is I've never been comfortable with the idea of living with authority figures who are invariably correct about everything. That's not part of my idea of what a human being should be. Um, but of course, the Kogi Mamas have the advantage that the evidence is on their side. Um, but there's also uh, now with the development of these schools with more Kogi learning as children learning Spanish, um, as there is a concern that respect for the authority of the Mamas is declining. Um, and this, of course, is what has happened to other indigenous people all over the world, is that the traditional authorities have been supplanted by other people who can answer questions and deliver solutions to problems uh, apparently more effectively in the very short term. Um, so the traditional authorities lose their status and respect for them diminishes. When I think of someone having authority, I tend to think of a hierarchy, meaning that there's some sort of resource that's being controlled, that's keeping people at the top of the hierarchy and subjecting the others. But here I'm not sure if there's a hierarchy in the sense of um, are the, the Kogi, the, the mamas aren't controlling the others. They're, is no. it a subjugation relationship or is it just difference, not higher or lower? It, you're tending, I suspect, to equate um, authority with wealth. Or access to some resource. Or access to some resource. Well, there, there isn't, that's not part of the process. The mamas don't have access to a resource of, of material kind um, that uh, anybody else wants. Mamas are often, um, their lives are made more difficult by the fact that they have to work for the community as well as for themselves. Um, so the time and effort that they can apply to taking care of their own land is diminished. So uh, it's not a profitable game to be a mama. Uh, authority is to do with respect. Uh, and we tend to uh, get confused about this because, but in reality, in our society too, authority has more to do with respect than it does with um, control of commodities. Um, although perhaps this is less true in America than it is in Europe. But in Europe, where authority is also connected with hierarchies of uh, status of birth rather than status of wealth 
So that's perhaps a little closer to what I'm talking about. It sounds like it's a it's not a dominance hierarchy. It's just more division of labor. Um, it's the the hierarchy is one of responsibilities. Obviously, the the mamas are in. They're trained to be in communication with Aluna, with natural the consciousness of the world, and that is because they are responsible for the society that they live in. Um, ordinary uh, kogi who are not given this responsibility are have to take the advice of the mamas and do what's called confession um, in Spanish, uh, speak uh, to the mamas and explain what's going on in their lives and discuss their issues with the mamas so that the mamas can help them. It's, if you think of the mamas as therapists to some extent, uh, a lot of their work um, has to do with medicine. Uh, so that's the sort of role they play. I want to change directions a bit here because I want to share... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indulge myself here. That there's been a model that's been brewing in my mind and heart that I'd love to get your thoughts on. So, you know, I'm trying to stay, I'm trying to avoid reconnecting my apartment to the grid, which means since I can't install something permanent on the roof, I gotta, I'm, I'm going up in 11 flights of stairs twice a day, three or four days a week. And over the nearly year now of this, I've been going through stages of why am I doing this? Because it's a lot easier just to plug something in. And at first I thought, well, going up and down the stairs, you know, I do cardio exercise. So I'll just, I'm just kind of uh, offsetting. Like it's not taking me more time, just running a bit less or doing other exercise a bit less. But I realized it was more than exercise. And then I started thinking I was doing it for, it's like a ritual, like we talked about before. And I thought, well, there's some value in that, but there's more to it than that. Because it's, and what I started thinking is that I'm, when I'm, so the staircase in my building that I'm climbing up is, it's fairly dark and cramped. It's not fun. It's not in itself enjoyable. And yet it's deeply rewarding. And I was wondering where the reward came from. And the reward as I'm where I am now is that I feel it's, I could do something that would hurt others. And I don't want to hurt others. And if in my heart, as I go up and down these stairs, is the people who would be hurt if I didn't do this and who, and what I mean, they'd be displaced from the land to get to the minerals and the fuel underneath and they'd have to breathe the pollution and things like that. And what's emerging is a spectrum in my, in my view. At one end of the spectrum, is isolation. And we tend to be moving, I see our culture moving increasingly in that direction. Yeah. And with isolation comes anxiety and depression and PTSD and things like that. And at the other end of the spectrum, what I used to think would be, and, and, but that came with progress at that end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum would be regress, would be uh, pain and suffering and we want to avoid that. We'd be that would be like reverting to living in the in the dirt like the serfs. But what what I'm doing because I have to figure out. I don't want to just do something that I think that they want. 
I have to figure out what they want. I think if I think of what, like sending them schools and nuclear reactors and solar panels and cell phones and food aid that is not sustainable, that's not really helping them. Like I've gotten, I'm sure we've all gotten gifts where someone got, someone, you know, got me something. And I'm like, this is not what I wanted. And this is not making my life better. And, you know, I still have to say like, thank you and how to be polite about it, but not encourage them to do that again. And I feel like that's, they're getting me something for them or for their impression of me, which is not me. But what, there's a different type of gift, which is where someone really puts the effort in to think of what the other person wants. And where I'm reaching is that the, what I'm doing, the, I'm, I hope, and part of why I'm asking all these questions is to understand what others want and to where my labor brings about the other person's betterment. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is love and community. And it, I, I believe that what, where I'm getting, and it's crazy because all this climbing up down the stairs is leading me to reconsider or, or re-reflect on my relationships with my, with my mom and my dad and the, the various women in my life that I've loved. And that this spectrum of isolation at one end and community at love at the other that requires me learning about others in order to understand what they want, not what I think that they want. Mm. Mm. And then I, you know, I'm taking very small steps, but moving toward the direction of community and love. I don't normally talk this way, (laughs) (laughs) but now I don't know any other way to talk about what I'm doing because if I don't, if I leave those parts out, if if I leave those parts out, it misses what I'm doing this for. And, you know, I'm not a parent. So a lot of people who are parents say, you don't understand what it's like to be a parent and the, and the love that you feel for a child. But I don't love less. I'm not inhuman. I'm Not having kids doesn't mean that I don't have that capacity. And I think it's, I, in fact, I don't think that, I mean, I think that this is what's being manifest. And not having children doesn't decrease my capacity and manifestation of, of love in my life. No, and having children doesn't necessarily increase your capacity for community-type love, which is a radically different thing, after all. I mean, the love of a parent for their child is total and unconditional, and the child is more important than the parent. Um, and there is nothing that a parent won't do for their child, um, in my experience. Uh, And even, I'm not sure love is even (laughs) the best word for that. Um, It is the the taking on of total responsibility. And when we were talking about the hierarchy, in a way, what the mamas do in relation to the community around them, I've never thought of it this way, but I think they do, um, is the responsibility of a parent for the child. If you want to call that love, you can. I'm not sure about it. The way the mamas speak about it is that they warm the community. They are, the word for mama, after all, means son. uh, And they are the son at the heart of the community, which means they have the responsibility to give it light, to give it energy, to give it warmth, to... Uh, to sustain it. Uh, And that is 
I'm not sure that that's love um, or even friendship. It's just absolute total responsibility. I feel like it has an element of putting the other person's interests before your own. Absolutely. Which, yeah. And that requires learning those things, which requires listening or observing. I mean, you talked about when you arrived there that you felt that they saw you, they, they saw parts about you, your behavior, your manners that, that you didn't know could be seen. Yes. And it was the opposite of creepy. I mean, someone could hear that and think, oh, that sounds creepy. They're like staring at you too much. But what I hear was warmth, uh, seeking to understand, um, putting you, putting your interests first. It was a tremendous lifting of responsibility from me. It was a wonderful release. Um, and yes, they do take responsibility. When If you go there as a visitor and you are invited and they want you to be there, they then become fully responsible for everything that happens to you. So they're responsible for ensuring your well-being and your comfort and your safety. And sometimes that involves an enormous amount of work on their part. When I was filming, uh, sometimes the whole community would be involved in a kind of ritual for the whole night to rearrange the world so that we were safe the following day. Is that special for you as an outsider or are they like that with each other all the time, everyone? No, that was because we were particularly vulnerable. Well, okay, so they have to take care of special things for you because of your ignorance or inexperience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I'm contrasting... But they choose to do that. I mean, it, it comes as a shock that they do. Because I'm comparing that with homeless here, where people just walk past them. Yeah. Including myself. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that they would be totally bewildered by that. Yes. Or... Yes, absolutely. Like, how could you do this? Yes. What's wrong with you? Yes. What are you doing if not helping them? Yes. Which raises the question of... What has happened to your system? What are you uh, for? Does the individual level... What are you for? How can you explain what you are for? Yeah, because the answer would be, well, I want to make a mark on the world and I want to I want to contribute to a system that helps longevity and reduce pain and make progress and produce great works of art. And I can do all that by stepping over this person that's lying on my feet. Yes. So one of the things that I've you know, I read these books, uh The Dawn of Everything and Tribe that talked about how one of the big, big things they talked about was that in colonial America, how um, there were uncivilized people and there were civilized people. And among the civilized people, some would live among the uncivilized and many of them would stay. And these uncivilized would live among the civilized and none of them would stay. There was a one-way flow that people preferred going toward the uncivilized, the indigenous. And they weren't, as I grew up learning, there are Stone Age cultures around. And for some reason, they still persist. And why do they persist when obviously our way of life is better? Why don't they get on board with progress and what makes sense? And what I learned was that because they're so stupid. I mean, no one said it that way. 
but they were ignorant and we had to teach them and then they would get on, then they would eventually get on board and then they would, then they'd be living well like us. And what these books pointed out was that they're not ignorant and they're not choosing out of not knowing, but they look at us and I, I suppose there are many who say, I, I want to join and they get on board and they assimilate. And, but I think there are many who look at us and say, we see that what you have, but I don't know exactly what they see. But from our perspective, I would say they, they see our longevity and our medicine and our cars and airplanes, and yet they choose. So what do they choose instead? They're not choosing shorter life. They're not choosing pain. I believe that they're choosing community and mutual support and freedom and equality. And maybe they, and they don't, when we see airplanes, we think, oh, wow, I'm seeing the whole world. I can, I can visit my family. I can visit nature. But I think they're seeing that's just, meanwhile, you're not seeing the homeless person that you're stepping over. Mm. You're not seeing the plants that you're paving over. Yeah. You're not seeing, and we don't even know what we're missing. Yeah. I mean, obviously when the, co the Kogi have talked about that to me, what, what, what they see when they see our world. Um, and what they see is essentially um, a world of viciousness, um, of uncaring, um, in which, as a Kogi, you would perish. There is no way you can survive in that world. It's um, a world of cruel selfishness. That's what defines it. And it holds up no attraction at all. That is what has one of the things that has preserved them is there's seeing clearly what you get on the other side. The vicious viciousness and the uncaring, the cruel selfishness, those seem pretty clear to me. There's something else that I didn't wouldn't have thought of, but as you say it, it made sense. They wouldn't be able to make it here. Yeah. And I think so my quick interpretation of that was that well, we look at them and think they have to work so hard. They don't have washing machines. They have to pound the clothes all the time. But I think from their perspective, it's since everyone's supporting each other and there's this whole community aspect, it's actually – they view their lives as easier. They do. Oh, yes. When I went there, first of all, I'm surprised if I haven't said this, um, I thought – that we live the way we do because it's so much more comfortable that we have organized things to make ourselves comfortable. And when I went to live with the Kogi for the first time, I became aware quite fast that the opposite is the truth and that actually I had never been so physically comfortable in my life anywhere as living in a Kogi community, where uh, the, the water is clean, fresh water. The air, totally different, this wonderful, pure air. And uh, all the food just is, is good, is healthy, is delicious. The fruits are magical, paradisical. And when I came back, eventually came back down the mountain, it took me quite a long time 
to be able to tolerate the life that I had been living under the impression it was comfortable. Because actually, it is very far from comfortable. It is uncomfortable. And virtually everything in my life, if I stop and think about it and feel it and let my body experience what's really happening to it here, is nasty. The air is bad air. The water is bad water. I'm sitting on a chair which compresses parts of my body in an uncomfortable way. There is nothing around me that enhances my comfort. All these things are, in fact, things that have been sold to me, and I have been persuaded that I want to buy them. And my work is to produce the money that allows me to buy these very uncomfortable things that make my life difficult and unpleasant. And they, I mean, that's what they see. That's what I see. Well, so they see it even more. I mean, they they don't even, it's, do you mind, you talk about the creature or the the physical uh, comforts and discomforts. What about the relationships? I don't understand the question, sorry, can you? Oh, you described, okay, so there, there are things in your life that you were persuaded to buy yeah to with ostensibly to bring you to make to make you more comfortable although it's actually they do the opposite yes yeah you've learned to tolerate these things yeah. now coming back how about what happens when you think of the relationship that you have i mean there are a lot of people in your life presumably that you have in your life because they want something from you or or you to advance our idea of culture and or, or progress. Um, I have a very, perhaps simple-minded view of the people in my life, um, which is that I think we are mutually supportive. We are here to look after each other. We take pleasure in each other. Just before talking to you, I had a phone call from my brother, and my uh, belief is that my brother phones me to speak to me because he actually cares about me and I care about him and my children and my grandchildren and my wife, we all care about each other. Admittedly, we live perhaps a slightly unusual life in that we actually do, in a sense, live tribally in that the whole of my family live within walking distance of each other in London. And I mean the whole, that's probably some 30 people, Um, apart from one who lives abroad, but all the rest of us choose to live quite close to each other. So we we are a a kind of community. Um, Not that we do it consciously. It's just what feels right to us all. And what about all the strangers in your life that you pass by walking the street that you have no idea who they are? I I would imagine the Kogi all know each other if there's, I mean- They do, yes, obviously they're a smaller community. Um, it used to be one of the things I really loved about London is that I could walk the streets knowing with reasonable confidence that the people I would pass I would never see again in my life. Um, the anonymity of London, which I used to think was quite a wonderful thing. I'm not so convinced of that now. Yeah, yeah it reminds me when I was when I graduated college, a friend of mine got a place down in Little Italy. And 
Little Italy is, is mostly gone now from Manhattan. But she got an apartment that was not – there was like you had to pass her little courtyard to get to her building. So it was like off the street. And she pointed out well, – something she said, like she never had to lock the door because everyone was watching all the time. And she, everyone knew who came and went. And I always felt like when I visit her, uh-oh, like everyone's watching me. I, but she said – she felt weird for a while, but then it became very welcoming and everyone knew everyone, everyone, it was, I was something that turned me off. She, when she got into it, she really liked. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's what you're talking about of. Yeah. 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 Man, there's so many other things I wanted to get into, but anything to close with? Um, well, the main thing I wanted to say is that I'm really very anxious to have um, uh, any support as, as the Kogia that anybody wants to provide to us. And I do invite people to go to the website, uh, Tyrona Trust, T-A-I-R-O-N-A-T-R-U-S-T dot org. And you can make a tax deductible donation if you want. And I just want to say that. And I want to add that I have, and I will again. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope that everyone else does too. Great. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Alan Herrera, thank you very much. Great talking to you. Thank you very much for your tolerance and forbearance. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.